You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. No special characters or spaces. Okay, let's hop to it. All right, so we're back bringing two more holidays to you guys this week. And uh, mine is on September 23rd. It is Checkers Day. And mom, what is yours? Mine is September 21st, and it's Escapology Day. Okay, well, how about we go with September 21st to start off and escape in this little segment you got. Uh, I see what you did there. It didn't quite work, though. Yeah, well. <laughs> you tried. Don't give up the day job. Okay. All right. Yeah, so once again, it does seem like my day comes first. I don't know. It's, it's not always, always that way. When we throw our darts at the, the days, you know, I must just, like, I don't be closer to one side than the other. But anyway. Okay, so September 21st is Escapology Day. Uh, So I have two questions for you. Do you know why it would possibly be the 21st? Any guesses? Some big escape happened. Maybe it was like those three guys who escaped from Alcatraz. Oh, actually, that's kind of a neat perspective. You are half right. A big escape did happen that day, but not from a prison. It was... Harry Houdini's uh, first performance of his Chinese water torture chamber escape. So it's based on Harry Houdini's first performance of an escape. But if I just say like escapology, what does your mind think of? Like in the recent years that there have been those escapology rooms that have been coming out and basically you just go with a group of friends, maybe it's strangers, and then you uh, try to solve some mystery that's going on with, like, physical puzzles in front of you, and there's all these weird contraptions and just strange number patterns you have to follow or something like that. So I think that is kind of, it's really been brought into the forefront nowadays with the escape rooms and stuff, so I think that people that are not older (laughs) probably would you know tend to really that would be their first thing when they hear escapology because they probably would hear the escape and maybe not the ology part and think about those escape rooms and um and then also uh, so a lot of games on the computers nowadays are kind of escapology based or like uh scavenger hunt based to get you know get into a room unlock it things like that so, um, so it's kind of interesting because what I like about Escapology Day is it is actually celebrating all of Escapology. So that includes any modern day Escapology, which can include the escape rooms and the, um, the games and the coding for the games. It can include, uh, the, not the escapes from the prison, like you said, but any of the old escape artists. But also, I think that, so we, you know, tend to go to Houdini probably first. That's probably like the biggest one yeah, that big people think about. Artists, yeah. yeah. But there are so many of them. I'll list off a few later and get into um, a couple of them. 
But even just modern day, you know, I, I, the two things that I would think of when I think of escapology would be the escape room. But then once again, Harry Houdini and like vaudeville time or that older time and black and white stuff, you know, and I don't think of the modern magicians as much for escapology, but there are some out there that practice that. Um, and just even, I, it's interesting because I just don't think of modern day, there's some great mu- uh, magicians, I was going to say mu- musicians. There's some, there are there, some great there's musicians. There's great musicians too, but yeah, there's some great magicians out there. And um, they I don't just, really do escape as much, right? Is that what you're trying well, to say? Well, no, they do some escapes. So I'll talk about that, but I just... Um, and I don't think of modern day magicians as much as I do the older ones. You know, my brain, just when you say magician, I don't tend to think of the newer ones, even though I've seen them. I've seen some in person and things like that. It just, my mind always goes back to that time about Houdini and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the old, just, you know, old fashioned tricks and going back that far. And then the, the stunts that they would do that would put their lives in danger. Sometimes. Well, yeah, they would always get into situations that were like, you know, life-threatening, or seemingly so, and they would always, like, find some way to do it. Maybe it's, like, a bed of, not nails, but, like, the one where you have to, like, saw, and you have to escape from that, or maybe it's, like, the sarcophagus with the nails inside of it, and it's like, oh, how'd they go? But I feel like nowadays a lot of magicians are kind of just like, oh yeah, I'll do card tricks or maybe like some other kind of illusory act yeah instead of just escaping to which get out I, of something which i think we think of that but there are a few out there that do those big large scales even nowadays so i'm going to actually skip ahead because you brought up a good point um you know better nails things like that so again my notes here there's actually different types of um escape performances and uh so there's hidden full view escape or die basically so this is coming the die one is you just don't finish the act it's right there well yeah so that (laughs) at that point it's not really magic or illusion anymore i mean there is a point to some of the illusions but it really is not you know i mean they might have a little bow trap or something to help them but it really is an escape at that point you know and learning all the ropes for the actual escape so I think it's interesting that these magicians, we, we talked about this before in an episode that, um, that it seems like things always have to be bigger, better. Um, in the case of magic, maybe like scarier, you know, or giving the illusion of scarier, um, putting your life on the line and in danger. But they really did put their life on the line and in danger. Um, and even like you said, the better na- nails, I mean, they lay down on it, you know, they, they learn how to do the pressure points correctly, but they really are on a bed of nails and could be severely injured and stuff on them. So it was always that hunt for the bigger, better thing for uh, them to be booked, you know, basically, and stuff like that. So uh, I'm going to go back to these three forms of escape. The, uh, there's a website I never knew existed. Wiki Millie. Have you ever heard that? No. Wikimili, the free encyclopedia. So I kind of don't really know the difference between that and Wikipedia. Unless it's just competition. But anyway, so I am getting some of these um, from there. So the interesting thing was when I went to actually research Escape um, All G Day, 
I started from one of the websites that we tend to go to a lot, especially with our blog and things like that, and it's um, Days of the Year. And they talked about Escapeology having the Escapeology Day having their own website. And when I went to it, there wasn't a whole lot on it through that actual website. So I started just kind of going and researching the you know famous escape artist, escape art, I guess if you call it in general. Then it got into different societies and guilds and things like that. So I started looking into those, and um, but eventually it led me to this uh, Wiki Millie. Uh, site. So it's kind of interesting. They had a lot of just um, neat little facts about it. Like I wouldn't think of the different forms of escape performance, you know? <laughs> so, but anyway, so I'm going to quote from them, uh, Wiki Millie, and the forms of escape performance once again. So hidden. Hidden is a style of escape performance popularized by the late Harry Houdini that involved much of the performance taking place behind some sort of screen or inside a cabinet in order to protect the secrets of the performer. Okay. So you aren't really seeing it. Basically, just at the very, very end, you know, they're there. And you knew that they started out in the water chamber or buried underground or anything like that. Um, There was a show right that I loved last season. I used to tell you about it. Now I can't think of the name of it. And it got canceled, and I know so many people liked it, but they... um, they did a huge, like, the very beginning of that uh, show, the very first episode, they do this whole thing where um, he disappears and then ends up in another um, city, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's a twin twin brother. Yeah. That's kind of the the um, illusion there. So I'll have to think. I'll think of the name eventually because I absolutely love that show. A lot of people loved it. We tried to save it on. On uh, Twitter and social media, but unfortunately, it got nixed. I know. So, The Hidden was uh, popular with a lot of the performance artists, uh, just because they did not have to, once again, show how they did anything, especially if it was sleight of hand or if there was a trap door or anything like that. But according to um, Wikimillie, they said that one of the disadvantages that... um, they, the audience, you know, is not seeing everything, so they believe that a concealed assistant um, might have helped them be released or something like that, and that they didn't actually release themselves. Sure, it's kind of like you don't really need to use your mind, <laughs> you know, by just, like, looking at something that's like a blank screen, and you're just like, oh, yeah, it's easy enough for them to get out. So, yeah, so there's still the suspense and just the coolness and allure and mystique. But it's like, yeah, but, you know, I didn't see anything. So who knows what was back there? Did you have a twin, you know, back there or did they release yeah. something like that? So once again, because things need to be bigger, better, more realistic, then they have the full view. So the full view as a form of escape performance that was popularized by Norman Bigelow Sr. during the 1970s. So once again here, we're talking about, I just, I found it so fascinating that there, it was so modern. I really just, once again, kind of think about vaudeville and older and Houdini mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the more I researched and just found all these really new things in, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, I was like, wow, it's just kind of cool because I... My mind doesn't think about that. Um, So in the 1970s, uh, Norman Bigelow Sr. 
presented his escapes as pure test of human skill and endurance, and the audience could actually see everything from start to finish. And his signature escape was called The Doors of Death, and um, inspired many escaped artists to adopt the style of performance in their own shows. One performer took the full-view approach even one step more with his Buried Alive escape and um, made it a world to debut of Buried Alive in full view at the Music um, of Art Festival in Buffalo, New York. So, um, but to me, that's kind of even getting to the next one that we're going to talk about, the Escape or Die, basically. Okay. But once again, so the person who pioneered full view was in the 1970s, and then here's this kind of um, protege going, hey, you know, I like that, and maybe you can help me, and he took it out to the world basically at that point. So then the last one is escape or die. And basically exactly like it says, you either escape or you die. So it's not even really a, it's a performance art, but at that point it's not sleight of hand. It's not anything like that. It literally is. How do I get out of this, um, you know, the straight jacket? How do I get out of this lock? How do I get out of whatever? But not only how do I get out of that, but I am put in a dangerous situation to begin with. So once I get out of that, I also have to get out of this other situation. Don't try it at home, kids. Yes, definitely don't try it at home. Um, but it did originate with Houdini. And um, it's pretty much everything that I was researching, there are some great escape artists. There have been plenty of great escape artists since Houdini, but he really was um, the pioneer for the the ultimate. He wasn't necessarily the first. There were some other brothers out there and stuff in the 1860s that did some, but he just um, popularized. Yeah, it. I guess that's a better word. He didn't like pioneer it. Yeah, he made it celebrity status. Yeah, so kind of he thing. was the one that really kind of took it above the top. Was always looking for that next and biggest and greatest thing. And what can I do? So. um there's three different ways for an escapologist's life to be at risk, according to this escape or die. So would you like to guess them? Okay, so can you repeat that again? Okay, so uh, there's, with the escape or die, basically there's three situations that are usually set up. So there's three different ways that they could die. So do you, could you guess? Oh, uh, drowning. Yes, so drowning one. is one. Um, I... I don't know. I'm trying to think of like, is it a material kind of thing that they would die in? Is it like fire or? Well, I feel like these guesses aren't going to get better. So I you mean, should... okay, that I, I'll give you a half credit because um, death by suffocation. So if they're like buried alive and they're in a coffin or something like that, that's so they drowning. Would be, they would be in. I know death by drowning is actually in a water escape, but Houdini did pioneer the water escape uh-huh. so and then um death by falling and that is i'll talk a little bit more about this because um there's actually a lady who really you know you think of all the you think of usually the ladies as the beautiful you know assistants and stuff like mm-hmm. that so there's a lady out there that wanted to break that um stereotype basically and she was known for um, the straight, straight jacket escape. And a lot of times when they do the straight jacket escape um, or some other escapes like that, they're actually suspended, you know, way up high, sure. upside down in a lot of cases. So that would be the falling part. And uh, yeah. Oh, 
But the thing was that uh, they did talk about electrocution too, but that was not really um, one of the one of the main three ways because they typically were buried alive, put in water, or um, put way up high. I guess you're just not electrocuting enough people. <laughs> I know. So let me get back here since I jumped ahead since you kind of brought that up, but that's interesting. Okay, so with. With all this death, you know, or possible death, then um, they kind of, I think, do have to believe in something to help them get through. So Escapology has its own patron saint. Okay. Name is Saint Nicholas Own. And the reason that they came up with him is it's thought that he actually helped um, some people escape from jail. Okay. The Tower of London. He actually is, uh, got escaped. Out of Tower, yeah, Tower of London. London. Okay. But he escaped first, and then he got them out. So anyway, so I guess that's kind of why it's like, okay, the saint helped these people, so they'll help protect me. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I guess so. And then they um, they also said that there's another one, uh, St. John Don Bosco. But I really don't know... Um, why? Yeah, why? They just kind of brought up his name. The, it's a fun the, name. The main one that came up quite a bit was St. Nicholas Own, which I kind of find interesting because, you know, St. Nick in general and stuff. Um, anyway, I wonder if that kind of goes along with the lines, too, of uh, what we learned when we were in Greece, how the different names, you know, different saints and all, and they don't celebrate birthdays. They celebrate their saints' mm-hmm. day. So they celebrate their name day as their birthdays. And so you so. think the escapologists are all just like, ah, yes, on this day, I have been born. <laughs> Maybe. I have escaped the womb. I know. We got, we got a new lease on life, right? So um, the official, well, I don't know if it's the official definition, but uh, on Wikimilly, they talked about that basically escapology is just um, practicing any escape from any restraint or any type of trap. And so um, we talked about a couple already, coffins, straight jackets, uh, fish tank, because we talked about like the, the water and stuff. Do you know any others that you think they might escape from or you've seen them escape from? Oh, no, I have no clue. <laughs> so handcuffs. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but still, let's call it concern and escape if they can get out of the handcuffs. Cages, steel boxes, barrels. Bags, which is interesting, but I guess I have kind of seen a, like a big muslin heavy bag tied down and rope and stuff like that. And also, I think they do, do that in some of the water escapes. Me, this is one that you said burning. See, I didn't even think of something that would be like burning. What are they held hostage over a flame? I I think I have have seen them over a flame, but I think they've also been like maybe in boxes before, and then there's fire burning around them. And they have to escape, so they escape from the box. But then once again, they're in another peril. Mm-hmm. So um, buildings, other perils, and then combination of perils in some cases: straight jackets and chains and water, things like that. Double the danger, double the fun. Yeah. So. There are several um, societies out there for escape artists. Uh, they have some in the UK, but once again, very modern. You know, you would think that they kind of would have started that before, but the United Kingdom Escape Artists was formed in 2004, and then uh, 
The other one is Escape Masters, which is the International Association of Escape Artists, and that was in 1985. It was formed by Norman Bigelow, the guy that we already talked about. And then um, they actually came up with a, well, they had a president and they came up with a magazine in 2001. So once again, very, very recent stuff, you know. So, I mean, still 30, 40 years, but not 80 you know, 100 years ago or anything like that. All right, so I kind of want to talk about, oh, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about world records, and then I want to talk about just some of the famous escapologists. But in 2012, Lucas Wilson, an illusionist from Canada, managed the fastest ever recorded escape from a straitjacket while suspended. So once again, he's got that, you know, the straitjacket. It's like, oh, oh, um, but he did it while suspended. He escaped in 8.4 seconds. That's quick. Yeah, while hanging upside down from his ankles at a height of one meter. Man. <laughs> so that that alone would be, I mean, I don't mind heights, but I would not want to dangle upside down for a long time. No. <laughs> so, uh, in he fig- didn't either. He was like, I need to get out of here. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I want the blood rush into my head. I know. So um they talk a lot about just um in fiction and movies things like that and it was interesting because uh there was known to be this like i guess film done by harry houdini and some people had seen it but it was like a lost or mystery film because they really didn't know and um a lady by the name of Dorothy Dietrich. So I'm gonna get. Uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about her because she is the one that decided. You know, uh, it shouldn't be men all the time. It needs to be women doing some of this stuff. And so I she was the one the, in the straight jacket. Yeah. Okay. So she. Um, but she wanted a level of playing field. But she actually um, knew. You know, when people would say, "Oh, there's this possible movie out there," and people are like, "Nah, there isn't that you know movie." She's like, "No, I've seen it. I know where it is." And she um, tried to actually get the rights from the owner of the movie for a long time. Wouldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't. Then they finally did. But um, it's actually called uh, "The Grim Game," and it was uh, done in 1919. So once again, this is why I think back to there. And it stars Harry Houdini as a young man who is bound. And imprisoned on numerous occasions by a gang who have kidnapped his fiancée. And it's considered by many as Houdini's best film. And technically it was lost for over 90 years till she's like, no, it is out there. And yeah, we will make sure that it gets one person didn't want to give the rights to it. I know. Away. So, anyway. So that is interesting that she did pursue it, um, you know, and really, really went after it. Uh, another one that would be definitely modern and I think uh, a little bit more relatable now since it's not too old, but 2013 uh, film that I did like, Now You See Me. Mm-hmm. And um, Isla Fisher plays an escape artist, um, Henley Reeves, in that. And she actually watched Houdini's work, and Dorothy Dietrich's work, and then she got to train with Dorothy Dietrich. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's yeah. fun as a fan. Yeah. So um, there's two things that Dorothy Dietrich's known about. So, you know, I'll get to that in a couple minutes. But the straight jacket that we just said. And then also the bullet catch and the teeth. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And um, even Harry Houdini wouldn't do that one. So she really, like, leveled the playing field with that. Yeah. All right. So some of the um, some of the famous ones... Harry Houdini, we talked about. Dorothy Dietrich, we talked about. Um, okay, so Norman Bigelow. 
and then some others, um, which I have to admit I haven't heard of a few of these, so um, that will probably be something I'll do for uh, for, for the, the holiday yeah, to for, celebrate <laughs> it. for the Escapology Day is actually go look up some more about these people. Um, so Dean Gunnarsson. Okay. Alan Allen. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. And then here we got the, the modern ones, David Blaine and Chris Angel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you were talking about how it seems like more of the modern ones don't do as much escape, but they, they actually, the two of them are really known for escapes. So then you have David Copperfield, but I can't remember if he did escapes, but, you know, he did huge disappearing acts, like made the, the audience disappear, made the plane disappear, things like Statue that. Statue of so. Liberty. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. So, anyway. Okay, so uh, to finish it up, I want to talk about Dorothy Dietrich. Because she is, um, she not only leveled the playing field, but she just really immersed herself in a magician's life, basically. And and she just kind of has a fascinating story. So, first thing I found really fascinating, she was born on Halloween, October 31st. Ooh, she was destined for this. Yes. Did you know that Houdini... Passed away. Yeah, Yeah. on Halloween. And she has done a lot to really kind of keep his name out there and his legacy out there. So I think that, you know, it kind of must be fate that way. It's very interesting. Some timey-wimey stuff going on there. Yeah, she started as a stage musician. Did I say musician or magician? Stage I did it magician. Again. I did it again, didn't I? She started as a stage magician. She actually started extremely young. Um, I did not substantiate this. I only read it in one place. And um, that I went to her website as well as got the stuff off of the wiki, Millie. Um, so I don't know because I didn't go research it further. But supposedly they kind of do a play on this. Her first escape was from an abusive dad when she was 13. Oh. And because she, you know, only got up a little bit of money to kind of leave, um, she had to do some unsavory things and find work, basically. And um, she got, definitely got her start um, on stage. The way she portrayed herself is a lot older than, um, you know, a teenager so she got booked in a lot of places that teenagers probably wouldn't get booked sure. things like that. But um, so she stage music- musician. Or why can't I do the magician? It's the stage, stage magician. <laughs> magician. See, I can't do it. See, I make a new word. Magician. 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 How about you say word. magi? Just <laughs> why can't I say that? And it's even in front of me. It's like you know, staring me in the yeah. face here. But anyway. Uh, so, but now I forgot what I was going to say about her. There's one thing that was really kind of cool. That was like an off thing. But anyway, um, so she was the stage magician. And then uh, she went to escapology. And st- oh, someone had said something about, um, just made an off the wall comment about Houdini. And she really didn't know about Houdini back then. So she started researching it and um, him and just, you know, escape escaping and um magicians in general and really just got fascinated with all that so uh she we talked about this but she's um best known as the first and only woman to have done the bullet catch in her mouth okay 
So now they did talk about like there's um, some of the bullet catches they do in their hand, things like that. Mm-hmm. So there could have been that, but she actually did it in her mouth, and she was the first one to perform the straight jacket escape. So her website is um, Houdini.org slash Dietrich. So oh, she inserted herself a little yeah. bit into his. Uh, <laughs> well, we we'll kind of talk about that because she really has. Um, you know, and kept a legacy yeah. alive and uh, created museums and things like that. So that's that's the reason why. But if you're if you're looking for her and her specific website, it is Houdini.org. So, and she was often called the um, the female Houdini, actually. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So from her actual website, they have some really cool pictures um, of her doing this. They actually have a, quite a few pictures. So if you're interested in you know seeing some of her acts or just her. Uh, then if you go to her website, they have quite a few. And uh, they show her dangling up above in this great jacket. But um, this was her straight jacket escape that made her pretty much famous. They said after that, she she did a few things up to that point. But once she did that, she just, you know, she was getting booked left and right, basically. But it was a daring feat to perform 15 stories above her, suspended from a burning rope Oof. without a net. And after being put in by police and security guards, uh, magician Dorothy Dietrich is one of the few people, only five in the world, to ever attempt this feat and the only woman in history to accomplish it. Houdini never did this escape. In her stage act, she does it standing up, attempting to beat a giant clock in the background. She has also done it suspended from the uh, flies for major productions, and she is known as a female Houdini. She's kind of crazy, huh? Yeah. I mean, I guess like... (laughs) You gotta be. Yeah, if you're gonna be doing any of these tricks. But even Houdini, like you said, he didn't do this. No, he didn't do the bullet or or that particular trick and the burning rope. Yeah. So, because... Anyway, yeah, that kind of creeps me out. Good for you. (laughs) So, um, she was actually... Um, early on, considered a leading dove worker. She worked with a lot of different animals, actually, in her acts. So she was um, known for that. She was also known, I think this is so funny, for sawing men in half. Because once again, it's usually the glamorous, you know, assistant that has to get in the box and be sawed in half. And she's like, wait a minute, why is it always that way? So she actually uh, went on television and uh, sawed to uh, late night hosts. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I think that's funny. Um, she broke a lot of barriers, like we talked about. And um, one of the barriers that she broke was women were not allowed full membership into the... Gentlemen's um, clubs or something. Yeah, but not the, the... They were the gentlemen's clubs of the magicians and the escapologists. Yeah. The, and the societies and stuff like that. So, like, the Society of American Magicians and the London's Magic Circle... And um, so she's actually, she tried to join those, couldn't get in. So she pioneered the way to eventually get into this. Good for you. I know. she's She was definitely a pioneer. And like I said, you know, I it's interesting because you hear a lot about Houdini, hear about a few of the others, and they're always men, you know, and you just don't hear about the women out there. So um, she's also co-editor, contributor, and publisher of Hocus Pocus magazine. And she created the Magic Townhouse, which originally my mind went to the one out, I guess, near L.A. or whatever, the real famous Magic House out there. 
all the magicians yeah. go out there. But um, but that wasn't it. This is actually in New York. So okay. she created this. And she wanted it to be a place that they could do um, shows and things like that. Uh, but also where where she could develop other future generations of magicians. So not just perform, but also let them kind of develop it. So. This sounds a lot like that. Um, it probably inspired that one like Disney Channel film where I have no clue what it's called. But do you remember where they just had like a bunch of teenagers oh, go to the boarding yeah. school? Yeah. And it was fake magic <laughs> but it was real magic and yeah, like they had that, to play that off what was that oh called? i have no clue oh and by the way the um the show that got canceled this past season is deception okay it was so good and the funny thing is that i didn't even like start to watch it they had promoted it for quite a while and i was like eh, you know whatever and then i was watching whatever huge show was on before it and right after it, of course, this came on and they just, I mean, they hooked you within just the first few minutes. And it was like, is this a commercial? Is this a show? What is this? And and then they had me hooked. <laughs> so anyway. Unfortunately. <laughs> I know. I hate it when they do that and just, you know, end it like that. And it didn't even, I don't even think it finished the season. I think that's what made us so upset. <laughs> I guess I moved on with my life, though. <laughs> Have you? It's a deep repression. Uh, yeah. It's coming back out right mm-hmm. now. Oh, what's this podcast going to do to me? Okay, so we talked about um, her straight jacket, but she's also known for the bullet catch. And in 2008, Bust Magazine reported about Dietrich's 1988 attempt to catch a bullet in a metal cup in her mouth. She performed at Donald Trump's Resorts International's 10th anniversary in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And uh, like I mentioned, she left home really, you know, young and kind of was in some unsavory places. And a lot of the places that she performed were casinos. So, mm-hmm. um, and especially in the New Jersey area. And um, her, the event, the bullet catch was televised on a special called, just for the record, The Best of Everything. I guess that's actually kind of a nice compliment to be on the best of everything. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I like that. And uh, so this came after she uh, came about after catching a 22 caliber caliber bullet for the yearly convention of the International Brotherhood of Magicians in Pittsburgh. It was also shown on network TVs and um, on Canadian television. And she is the first and only female to successfully complete the bullet catch in the mouth and um this is like i kind of mentioned before even houdini didn't do this um i guess you'll call it a trick yeah but um so pretty amazing that you know she's the first woman but there aren't that many people out there doing it anyway and they talked about some other things that you know they do the bullet catch in the mouth some people do it in the hand um stuff like that but she wanted to make sure that no one was doubting thomas basically okay So uh, she had really tight um, restrictions on this and kind of made it almost like a Fort Knox. She wanted to make sure that people knew that she wasn't rigging these bullets or anything like that. So it was done under test conditions with the bullets um, bought by a committee. They were brought in under guard. An independent marksman picked and fired the bullet. 
One of the two chosen bullets was fired into a concrete backstop, and the second was fired at Dorothy. And Dietrich challenged anyone who could prove that the bullet did not leave from the gun uh, by offering a $10,000 reward. Did yeah. anybody claim that ten thousand? <laughs> well, it award? doesn't say that in here, and I am assuming that they they didn't. And I guess the reason that they wanted to have the two bullets was to show it really went through the wall or whatever. So that is real bullet. But uh, there have been feature stories and articles about her in major publications, uh, such as New York Times and TV Guide. So she definitely um, turned the tide on that because not only. Was she um, evening in the playing field by being a female? But just that she actually got through it. Is... Good for her, you know? Yeah. yeah. She'd also probably make for, like, a good soldier, you know? Like, just send her out on the field and she'll be catching all the bullets. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, that, I think we should come up with a superhero power like that. And a superhero person that could go around grabbing the bullets by their by the silver mouth. bullet. There you go. Maybe make a superstition or legend about them, too. So anyway, um, I had mentioned before about um, that she has a, a tight connection to Houdini. And um, she's been giving the bl- blessing of the family to actually restore and upkeep Houdini's gravesite. So that's kind of nice. And then uh, the last thing about um, her in particular is... And this is very current. So once again, all these things are extremely current. But she actually did a Kickstarter campaign. Okay. Yeah. So in 2014, Dorothy Diedrich partnered with Dick uh, Brooks to create a board game based on the Houdini Museum. And it was called Houdiniopoly. Houdiniopoly. Yeah. So I think it's um, interesting, though, because with Kickstarter... It's all or nothing. So the backers, you know, get their money back if you don't reach a goal. So you got to make sure that you really put in the correct goal. But she knew that they had some money themselves to put into it, and they don't want it to fail. So they figured that they needed about ten to $15,000 to actually, you know, kind of do the research and get the game up and running. So they decided they would start pretty low with their goal, and they set a goal of $8,000. And they actually easily surpassed that, and they got $14,000. Good for her. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. And um, then they did a couple stretch goals to actually um, kind of tweak the pawns a little bit. But it was um, it took a little bit of time. So 2014 is when she came up with the idea and uh, did the partnership. 2017 was the Kickstarter campaign. And then it was about a year later before they um, actually got to completion. But uh, she definitely said it was a success. They were able to easily, you know, get it up and running um, and out for completion without too many um, hiccups, basically. So, uh, so they were happy about it. And you can, uh, you can see the results on either Kickstarter or Houdiniopoly.com. So I think that, you know, for the day to celebrate on the 21st, we should actually see if we can find the Houdiniopoly and get it in time so we can actually play it. Possibly. That might be fun. So she appeared um, on a lot of different television shows, definitely. But the one I found the most interesting and like it was like, woo, cool, when I saw this podcast. Hey. She's been featured on a ton of podcasts. So Open Sesame and Dick Brooks, uh, Dorothy Dietrich, discuss legendary or the legacy of Harry Houdini. 
And then, uh, actually, I don't know if this was, they don't say the podcast, I don't think this was on, unless they just did their own podcast on this, but it was Finding and Restoring Houdini's 1919 silent film, Houdini's The Grim Game, which we talked about. Dorothy Dietrich also talks about being the only woman magician to do the bullet catch on the bonus podcast for the April 9th, or 2016 Sam Magazine cover story. And then Scott Wells discusses Houdiniopoly with Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich. So I think that's kind of cool that she's done all this podcast. Maybe she'll come and do ours. Maybe. Maybe invite next her. year. Yeah, invite her to talk about Houdiniopoly. Maybe we could play a game of Houdiniopoly with her. And try to contact Houdini. <laughs> Maybe. Have yeah, there's a whole Halloween. thing. I did cut it out, um, but actually about Houdini and seances. And um, I mentioned about Herbert Day being on Halloween. And then, of course, Houdini passing away on Halloween. And so she, uh, I think it was every year. But it was something about her doing the Houdini seances on Halloween. Yeah. So anyway. So um, basically, that's pretty much all I have. So how to celebrate um online they talked about celebrating can be um done actually with this one a lot of different ways you know it isn't like we have to kind of come up with something go visit an escapology room definitely research the escapologists that we've talked about or other ones out there and uh i will definitely do that because like i said in that list there were several i did not know and um i pretty much knew Harry Houdini, I guess, is really it, but, um, so I'll go back and learn a little bit more about them, uh, can practice some escapology yourself, just not the escape or die one, yeah, yeah, so definitely, um, kids don't do this at home, or, you know, if you do it, just try, like, the handcuffs or something, but even then, be extremely careful, um, and I guess, uh, you could come up with your own maybe escape technique or something. It's one that hasn't been done before. Sure. Yeah, and then go Tie get... a snake around you and try to figure out how to get out. Uh, you know, if a snake was tied around me, believe me, I would You'd get escape. out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would make... Yeah. I would find a way to escape. And then, um, you know, play Houdiniopoly. Yeah, well, I was I was looking up the title for that Disney Channel one, oh, yeah. and like I guess I kind of remembered it because when you had mentioned "Now You See Me," the film that you brought up earlier, "Now You See It" is the Disney Channel oh, version. That's right. It has Ali Mashaka in it from <laughs> Ali and AJ. Came out in two thousand five. That was actually a pretty good movie. It was actually pretty dark too. Yeah, that's true. It did get really dark. And then, like, when you were just mentioning about, you know, like, Houdini's period in time, but also how they kept trying to one-up each other, I was thinking of the Christopher Nolan film, The Prestige. Oh, yeah, I think you told me about that one. Yeah, it's a really good film. It's, you know, it has to do with magicians and essentially between a rivalry between two magicians where they keep one-upping each other, but... You know, they would also have the, like, escape from drowning or escape from just whatever it is. A kind of sticky situation. And it's a really, really good film. I would recommend watching that on um, Escapology Day. So well, we'll have to do that. And, you know, one thing that we haven't been doing in the podcast, and we should, so if you want to share it on social media, it's um, hashtag Escapology Day. Some of them I know have like a national or international or whatever, but it's 
just a skipology dot. I gave the hashtag out for last week's holiday. Oh, did that just like totally go by me? I guess so. <laughs> Was I ignoring my son? Yeah, yeah. Like like normal. <laughs> Didn't you say the guy who wrote the dot? Which was last week's episode. Didn't you say he actually reached out to us? Yeah. Or... So on, um, I, he sh- retweeted some of our tweets. He liked our tweets and our Instagram posts and stuff. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. I know. So uh, it looks like they actually had a lot of fun. And like you said, uh, if you if you followed our last week's episode, um, Bryce called it 15th-ish. Because um, if it's on a weekend then teachers aren't celebrating it but the which is mainly a teacher kind of centric yeah so they celebrated on friday and the following sunday this time so there you go or not sunday (laughs) monday yeah sunday was the day so monday yeah friday and the monday well that was last week so if you want to hear more (laughs) about that yeah and about aboriginal art and cool things like that pointillism go to last week's episode all right so you're up. So I have Checkers A, which once again is September Ooh, I like 23rd. That game. It's not a game. I mean, it is a game, but Checkers A is not related to the board game in any way. It's not? No, it is not. But rather, it's actually a, uh, based on one of the most important speeches for American history in the 20th century. Okay. So no Chinese checkers, no regular checkers board, nothing like that. In fact, actually what this day is about, it's in remembrance of a crucial moment in Richard Nixon's political career that would spell out a number of changes for the American presidency. So Checkers' speech, which Checkers Day is named after, the story begins with a flurry of journalistic reports on September 18, 1952, that explained Nixon and his campaign committee had been acquiring, misrepresenting, and mishandling his supporters' money in a secret fund. Which is kind of funny, because actually the whole secret fund that people were calling Nixon out on was very transparent and open. Maybe not so much public, uh, well-known by the public, but by the people who were contributing to it, um, knew what they were getting into. And so, like, Nixon's whole kind of deal during this period when he was running for vice presidency, he was trying to prove that not all politicians are corrupt and use fraudulent acts to get what they want. So his team really tried to promote, like, this idea that He's not trying to use the taxpayers' money in any way to, um, you know, do anything fraudulent with. So, like, he put a max cap at uh, how much could be spent in this fund. So, basically, he was a senator, right, at this point in his career. And he um, <clears throat> he did not have enough in his salary to pay for his staff when it came to campaigning and being able to pay for transport and everything when it came to rallying up the cause, rallying up people. So what he did was he got people he was very close with who could pay the funds and they could only pay about $500 as a maximum because Nixon did not want there to be like any idea that, oh, if you pay more than somebody, you get like special treatment, like you get favors in office or something like that. 
So it's kind of just ironic that, <laughs> you know, got spurred into this like whole, oh, it's all about corruption and politics again. But quickly the information got wholly out of hand and with the DNC's presidential candidate at the time calling for the removal of Nixon from the RNC's selected ticket, soon politicians from both parties were making judgments in defense or opposition to Nixon. Importantly, presidential candidate Eisenhower, who chose and supported Nixon, I think was like two or three months prior to this event, would not choose one way or the other, but many of his own advisors were telling him to drop Nixon once they heard all the scandal. So there's this kind of hope that Nixon would fear embarrassment of being labeled the guy who muddied or even tore down the president's reputation and Nixon would resign before the elections rolled around so they could replace him with another senator that they had called up during the weekend saying, hey, William Nolan, can you please come in? We're really scared about Nixon, and we're thinking he's getting out of here. So so they had an agenda, and they wanted him to resign. Is that is that why they did, I mean, is that Watergate? Was there a conspiracy to get him thrown out with Watergate because he wasn't thrown out here? I mean, there might be. There possibly, plausibly could be. But really what's interesting too is that, so this speech that I'm going into talking about has kind of been lambasted as like a red herring as a way to, by a lot of journalists and other media sources, um, basically saying like, oh, this was just an example of what was to come in you know, Nixon's later political career, and really he was just trying to hide some things in this speech that um, he is about to present. But there really is no evidence to show there's a link between um, what was going on in this event and the speech with Watergate. Really, it just kind of was like a whole mixed bag of things that were thrown onto Nixon and his staff all of a sudden, which is interesting when you're talking about um, how the speech has kind of changed how American presidents or politicians in general actually present themselves and address themselves to the American public through uh, media, um, because a lot of it was unprecedented, uh, what happened to him and what he was able to do after and be able to rein it all in. But... Yeah, no, I, I don't think there was actually a conspiracy at this time of, you know, trying to always get rid of Nixon. Um, but going back to the speech itself, so it started September 18th, that was like a Thursday or something, and you roll over the weekend all these just misinformation pieces coming out. Um, September 23rd, which was a t the following Tuesday, a large operation took place at one of NBC's studios in Hollywood, and I, I think it was NBC, I'm not completely sure. But Nixon's team scrambled together a live television address set for 30 minutes where Senator Nixon would clearly explain the reason for the fun. He And so um, he proceeds to do something in his own words as being unprecedented in the history of American politics by reading off a table of expenditures that produced from his own income, assets, and debts to over 60 million people across the nation. And what's kind of interesting, too, is, like, um, so the article that I'm getting, like, 
most of this information from was by the Atlantic. And in that article, they explained, like, at the time, television was still kind of getting a little bit more ingrained into society. Like, it already was, but just, like, everybody had it, pretty much, in America, if you were a family household. And so, um, it was just a really smart move to go onto television to do this address, and they actually selected Tuesday and not Monday, because Monday, when they wanted to do it, was when I Love Lucy was on. <laughs> And so they were going to pick the 30-minute segment following I Love Lucy, but they kind of were fearful that nobody was going to be on their, you know, have their television set on after <laughs> I Love Lucy was over with. So they chose the next day when there wasn't really the big show going on. Oh, but there would still be a strategy. lot of people watching. Yeah. So say it should be called Chess Day instead of Checkers Day. I mean, yeah, why not? <laughs> moving those pawns and make everything work well and so they also spent seventy five thousand dollars i don't know if that's inflated to you know today's money or that was the period i think it's inflated now but they specifically spent money to put him into his own 30 minute segment because they could have been scrunching up for like free time but you know it would have taken a lot longer and probably wouldn't have been on such a, like a dedicated time that people were watching. Um, similarly, while he's addressing the people, he is the only one on screen. Actually, his wife's on screen too, but she's not like the main focus. She's off on the side. She's in a chair. She's not always on the camera. Um, but he is, he basically made his speech himself and nobody knew what he was going to say. He walked up to the camera and just like stared right at it, but in a very uh, professional but trustworthy and kind of like familiar way, like a familial way actually, like it's your father figure talking to you or something. So going along with that, in his descriptions of his cost, you know, like in the way of he's trying to make buddy-buddy with you and be relatable, he makes the case that all the money he has earned and spent is from his own hard work. One filled with meager living, but grand ambitions. The whole reason why people were up in arms about Nixon taking extra money outside of his salary was because they saw this as an abuse of power by a rich man, but as he explains it, he's just one other average Joe. Um, once he has defended his position, he does, make a, he does make a strong comment that will go on to become the reason why, again, it is called Checker's Speech, or Checker's Day, eventually. Um, he recounts that the only gift he has received while in office is a cocker spaniel named Checkers. Aww. And with the love for this dog and his daughters, Nixon says that he'll never give up this dog. No matter what the Democratic or the Republican Party say, no matter what the American public says about, like, his, you know, abuse of power or something, he's like, I am keeping this one. And so Nixon and his staff actually never did accept the <laughs> title of Checker's speech. They kind of thought it was um, going against what was being presented there. So Checker's speech actually is now used as a term in you know, political terminology to basically mean like a, a speech that evokes emotion. Okay. Um, 
and but they were all the reporters are kind of like well evoked emotion because he brought up a dog <laughs> and uh, nixon and his staff didn't like that everybody thought they he only put in the dog comment so they could get the emotion Aww. emotional like a uh, safety harness or whatever that's like guys who you know want to walk a cute little doggy because all these girls come up and gush over the doggy I and know. they can get a girlfriend that way yeah exactly <laughs> um which is funny See? the poor dog is being used as a pawn so once again it should be a chess game well going back to the speech <laughs> So the speech ends with him reversing the comments placed on him to attack the Democratic Party for leading the American people into financial crisis and how they are the ones not to be trusted with managing a budget. He also implores the, because you know, like, <laughs> Democratic Party was supposed to be all socialists or, or more specifically communists because that's Nixon's enemy, the commies. But he implores the American audience to write to the RNC to keep his name on their list telling the Republican Party that they want Nixon in the White House. Which, as soon as the 30-minute segment was over and he had got off camera, the first thing that he said was, I am very disappointed in myself because I did not tell the people where to actually send that mail to. You know, like, nowadays it's pretty easy to look up information like this, but apparently he is actually very in the right to have concern of not telling people where to go. So basically, all these letters were actually sent out to different agencies and groups. It wasn't just the RNC that received, um, you know, <laughs> the yes vote for Nixon. <laughs> I also went to, like, all sorts of organizations. So it, it was popular, if anything. So after looking over all this, I found kind of, like, three consequences that have come from the speech. The first one being the most temporal of consequences. Um, the speech actually kind of rescued Nixon in the American viewer's eyes, and it helped him from falling out of favor, helped bolster his celebrity and trust for the, you know, for being the American politician that he was in years to come. And by one count, there are some 4 million responses to the speech, virtually all of them pro-Nixon. National Committee alone reported 300,000 letters and telegrams signed by a million people. Count ran 350 to 1 in Nixon's favor. Again, that's like a direct quote taken from an Atlantic. So as for the second consequence, which is arguably the one with the longest lasting effect on, in the American presidency, and politicians in general, would be how they come to communicate with the public through direct video transmissions over television, right? You know, you had radio and stuff, and that was the big kind of thing <clears throat> at the time, but nobody had to really use the television in the way that he did in such a personal way, which subsequently, a new style of republicanism from the RNC came about after the speech, or I guess, you know, kind of how Nixon wanted to promote or inspire people to be Republican or something like that. So he was very much like a grassroots kind of one. Instead of it just being economics, he would look into a lot of social uh, issues and try to match a social identity with the Republican attitude. And so like, interestingly, 
I did not know that Nixon was the one who actually set up everything for the Environmental Protection Agency to yeah. start. And he did a lot to just help out like the environment, but also social things. He was the one who really tried to help regulate or kind of do like a detente. He was very into for foreign affairs, but doing a detente between the Soviet Union, China, and America. So that's kind of how we got back into the good uh, and the favored eyes of China and a little bit of the Soviet Union. Well, so Nixon, he, I mean, his whole thing was when it came to at least the American public being like, we all have the equal opportunities, yada, yada. Um, and I don't want to take that money away from you and really trying to sell it to the blue collar worker kind of guy, which I thought was interesting when you look at like, so apparently that wasn't a very popular view prior to Nixon, but now you like look at Trump and he's doing the same thing. He's saying miners, um, coal miners, you know, I am going to be bringing back jobs for you and I'm wanting to keep all the socialist taxes out of everything and all this and that. I am an average Joe stuff. Of course, I mean, Trump's not an average Joe. <laughs> Neither was Nixon. You know, like, he's saying stuff like, oh, my uh, wife, she doesn't wear a mink uh, coat. <laughs> Instead, she wears a very pros... Uh, what is it called? Oh, like a Protestant conservative cloth. <laughs> as a coat or something like that and he also had you know like a legal degree he was a lawyer so it's like yeah these opportunities yeah, whatever yeah and he had a few houses then he he had a couple of houses yeah i don't think that's pretty average joe right there <laughs> oh but he in his speech he was explaining that he still had mortgage on both houses <laughs> and stuff like that in the second house his family was living in it. It wasn't for his family. His parents were living in it <laughs> currently. Yeah. Um, but the one that I am most interested in as a consequence is how, like, what is the narrowing of a dog's role in the White House? So have you actually heard of the first dog of America? Oh. Uh... Yeah, but it's more recent. It wasn't back in Nixon's time that I really heard about it. I don't know when the term started, honestly. But I do know that dogs and the president have been, like, peanut butter and jelly since, like, the early 1900s. How about um, kitty cats? No, the cats don't share the same phenomena. Oh, that's they... horrible. <laughs> They need some equal time here, equal press. Yeah. There was that cat that the Clintons had, right? Yeah, Socks. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that was theirs. I know Socks was in the White House because there's a big thing about Socks, and I, I think it was the Clintons. Yeah. Although, they also didn't care about their cat as much because they followed the same phenomena. <laughs> um, also, it's kind of funny because Checkers Day is also synonymously called Dogs in Politics Day. So, 
Checkers the Cocker Spaniel is just a continuing tradition of having or using animals, dogs specifically, to underscore certain concepts about a leader and how they may govern their people. In many respects, the modern American interpretation of this phenomenon is a metaphor for how the U.S. president is a trustworthy, traditional, authoritarian, or rather, a father figure for the American public. So I kind of enjoyed reading a research article written by, I think it's Annika Skoglin and David Redmond, which was published by the University of Sweden, where they observed Obama's uh, first dog, Bo, because there were two of them, Bo and Sonny. But they specifically looked at Bo as kind of being this like sort of foil to Barack during his presidency, or, you know, again, this metaphor that I was talking about. I don't know if foil is the correct term I'm using, but... He was a cute doggy. He's a very cute dog. <laughs> he is big. He's got curly hair. He looks like a golden doodle. No. He's a Portuguese something. I don't know. But anyway, back to the article. So the specifics are long, but the reflections they make when it comes to media distinguishing Bo as this type of symbol for different agendas, I just thought was very interesting. The actual uh, article is philosophical because <laughs> um, it all has to do with like Michel Foucault who's a French philosopher and it's like about his ideas on neoliberalism and biopolitics like the title itself is something to do with biopolitics but I thought it'd be cool to read it and learn about Michel Foucault and then I didn't understand much of it <laughs> except for the interesting observations they made and kind of tying it with these symbolic imagery imagery that they uh, saw in them. So in a way, he was purposed to nuclearize the family because in photos, there are like photos of Barack playing with Bo. The president himself is in trousers, a white fitted shirt, but no blazer. And Bo is catching a football. And so this is kind of like supposed to resemble the father coming home after a long day, taking off his jacket, but not fully getting out of his outfit. And he starts playing with his son, playing catch with his son. And it's important traditional information to like disperse or transmit to the American audience. So there are also photos of Bo carrying his own leash in his mouth, walking beside Barack, staring up at him attentively. And it's as though he has been given the freedom to do as he pleases now that he has been taught the rules of the house, which is a very, like, neoliberal idea. <laughs> kind of like, take away the government as much as you can, but you still need to be disciplined. Once you're disciplined, then you can do have your freedom and stuff. See, I think that sometimes psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever it would be, just look a little too deep into this with, like, metaphors and all, because to me... Just, like, seeing him playing with his dog, you know, and uh, without his coat and stuff makes him human, you know? it That, whenever someone has an animal, I think it just kind of makes them a little bit more human. And just, like, actors and stuff, we kind of forget, you know, they're just like us, too. And and we put a presence on a pedestal, so I think that that's what makes it more relatable. Instead of, I wouldn't be going... Oh, yeah, it's a symbol of the rules because of his dog and Alicia. It's a cute dog looking up at his daddy and wants to take a walk. Well, what's interesting is, like, 
So you're saying like it kind of humanizes Barack, but we also are giving a lot of like personable traits to the dog, a lot of human traits to the dog, but it's a dog, you know, it's yeah. not a human, so it doesn't have the same, not that we know of, it has the same like track of mind and being able to understand, oh, this, you know, action will lead to this consequence and it has an emotional response or whatever. Sure, you can do some of that, but not to like a, such a huge complexity and saying like, oh yes, humans and dogs, we have the same exact feeling. That That's very controversial as I'm <laughs> talking it out. But I would like to skip a little bit ahead because it's interesting that you brought up the humanizing part. So like, yeah, we do personify traits of our own animals, but so do the governing agencies when they are working with these dogs in the White House. So in the researched article on the Obama family's bow, they observed that not only is this dog a good boy, you know, like, yeah, he's following the rules and all that, and he's having a great time, but he can also be mischievous. And so the White House and media played up these, like, bad boy antics of his to give his character profile a more robust quality really rounding out a real childlike or human-like persona because it's easier to relate to that even if you don't have a dog like you know a kid probably or somebody who acts like a kid something um and relatability is a very core principle to kind of like this whole idea of why there's even a dog being presented in the media for the white house and all these agencies I thought it was interesting that there's a Business Insider article by Lucas Kawa that reported from the American Veterinary Medical Association a study recording how household's choice of dog or cat may give a good clue to how the household identifies politically. So they're kind of like relating, you know, if you're more attached to a dog, you might be like, oh yeah, this president who has a dog, that's great. And I like him. So... Interestingly, there was a strong evidence to show that uh, someone could make a reasonable guess as to how someone votes depending on location, and households with dogs in it will vote more red than households with cats. However, the states with the lowest percentage of dog households tend to be uh, democratic, but it doesn't show up in the same way that uh, you know, like, cats would then be owned by Republicans that didn't show up in the data. Well, actually, that would kind of make sense because, um, you know, kind of with the controversy of the electoral um, college and stuff, the the states that tend to be more red are in the rural areas, and the states that tend to be more blue have those high-density metro populations. And I could... It, it would be much easier to own a cat in those you know metro areas than a dog and in the rural areas they have them because they you know are either hunting dogs or they're working dogs on the farm or you just have a lot of acreage um or you want them for protection yeah so i could see how that kind of would correlate that you know you probably have a lot more cats in those high density uh, metro areas versus the yeah. dogs in the rural areas i when i say good evidence good evidence that's presented by the study it doesn't really <laughs> take in consideration in it, of anything else i also should know when i actually clicked on the link to go to the study 
The study was no longer online. <laughs> so. I would like to know, though, like with us, a multiple animal household. How many do- well, not many dogs. Out? We have one dog, but many cats. Yes. Yeah, so how would that work out? <laughs> the, the majority of whatever animal would rule in that case? Uh, maybe. Possibly. <laughs> Whichever one can actually put their paw print on the ballot. <laughs> there you go. Um, this is kind of unrelated, but it was found in the study, too. Uh, America, in 2013, I should say this, in 2013, there were more pet cats than there were pet dogs. Aww. I don't know if they were... That's a good study. I like that one. I don't know if they were the, uh, like, first pet of America, cats, but they did beat out dogs. (laughs) So, um, suffice to say, when the president is looking at moving a dog into the White House, it makes for a really big deal. Concerns are made by the president's staff and experts based on multiple criteria. Is this dog a popular breed? Is it hypoallergenic? Should it be adopted from a shelter? And what color coat would suit the needs of the president most? Uh, Stanley Corrin, a dog expert who writes in an article for Psychology Today that Bill Clinton's buddy the chocolate Labrador Retriever, was chosen over differently colored labs. Because the black ones were harder to capture on camera, and golden retrievers might be too eye-catching for viewers that it would distract from the president. Upstage the president. It's a concern! (laughs) Um, Also, (laughs) they aren't concerned that just the cuteness in general would upstage the president? I don't know. I mean, I'd be way more interested looking at the dog than I would be at any president. Um, also, Buddy, the Chocolate Labrador, is pretty much recognized as being a PR stunt. Uh, like, again, (laughs) I was saying, I think the Clintons had a cat prior. So when the sex scandal occurred for Bill, Buddy was kind of put in there to boost his support (laughs) from the American (laughs) public. But also because his daughter Chelsea had disappeared from new photos of the family that were being produced and captured by the media since she was away at college. So they kind of thought it would be, they thought something was missing whenever they would have like photos of Hillary going to greet Bill from like, you know, him coming back home or something. And it was just her. <laughs> so they threw in Buddy instead. So I wonder how Chelsea felt about being replaced by Dog when she uh, left. <laughs> and see, once again, it's a pawn in the game of chess. Ah, uh, you keep going with that, huh? Uh, yeah. These poor dogs. How they're being used. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and I, I guess I should say this. I totally forgot to mention it. Like, again, the history has been there for a while. It kind of started out with, I don't remember the president, and I don't remember what the dog's name was. It was like Laddie, Laddie something. But anyway, it was like Laddie, and then it was Fala or Fava, who is, I think, Theodore Roosevelt's dog, and then it was like Nixon, and then it was Buddy, and then, you know, whoever else. I'm just picking out random <laughs> names that I remember seeing, dogs that had a big presence in the Uh, White House, but um, other things to consider uh, when you are picking out your dog and you are a president is could this dog be playful, energetic, obedient, aggressive? Behaviors reflect how the dog must be treated in its home environment and the media will use that to laud or ridicule the president's power. 
So Theodore Roosevelt's dog, Falafaba, one of the two, was uh, apparently a really great dog and most people loved it. So much so that's like memorialized in a statue with him somewhere. But before this dog, there's another dog who I think was named Maddie, if that's correct. And there's a report of a journalist prompting the uh, president during an interview and saying, well, she's such a bad and like mischievous girl. What are you doing to her? And he's like, I don't know, you ask her yourself. And so the journalist calls up the dog and sit on the couch and says, well, what's up? What's the game you're playing here? And then this dog like bites at her nose. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but all of this was just very interesting to see how dogs were kind of being used and manipulated in such a political way. Um, I don't know if this was apparent in other uh, cultures and societies and governments. I know, like, there's the, you know, British corgis, but I didn't know if they were being used in any way in particular (laughs) to manipulate. But I bet you, like, socks... Because we don't know if there were other kitties in the White House. But Socks probably was a true cat and did what he wanted to do and didn't care. And probably if he was told anything, he wouldn't do that. So probably he, he probably would not have been a pawn. Probably. He's very independent, I'm yes, sure. I'm sure he was. So talking about how dogs are being used for power, the question comes up, do dogs have power <laughs> in like a, you know, governing way? So there are several instances in which dogs have run for or have been elected to office. Recognized as the first American canine mare, a Rottweiler Labrador mix, Bosco, beat out two human candidates to become mayor of his town of Sunal, California, and held the position for practically a decade before passing away in 1994. Oh. I think it was like eight, 1981 when he was elected. Oh, wow. So yeah, he had a good, good run. Um, Rabbit Hash Kentucky has had at least four dogs claim the role of mayor in the past 21 years. First one being Goofy Bornman from (laughs) 1998 to 2001, Junior from 2004 to 2008, Lucy Liu 2008 to 2016, and I like this name, Brynneth Paltrow. Paltrow. And uh, she started her pres- uh, not presidency, her mayoral duties in 2017 until I think currently, I think she is still going at it. And also like good for Brynneth because I feel like dog rights or something with this. <laughs> she is a pit bull. Aww. She's such a cute pit bull too. She's bar- breaking stereotypes. Exactly. Aww. She can lead a pack. <laughs> Um, Duke, a great Pyrenees, is well known for being elected four years in a row to be mayor of the town. I want to, I want to say Comoron because that is definitely a French spelling, but I think it's Cormorant Village in Minnesota. And in 2016, every ballot ticket that was cast was in support of him, reports the Huffington Post, except for one vote who was in support of his girlfriend, Lassie. (laughs) 
So in case she'll be the first, what you, that would be first mayor. What would you call a first mayor's wife? First, first mayor's girlfriend. I yeah. The first girlfriend. <laughs> um, but yeah, all these dogs don't hold any real political power. It turns out these towns are fairly small, sometimes unincorporated. Many, if not all, the election days are either a joke or have some sort of link to like an established festival, <laughs> and these dogs pretty much are honorary mayors Aww. but they are recognized as the mayors they will show up at uh conventions or parades where the mayor must be <laughs> and uh, you know they're just loved by everybody <laughs> where was that the goat that we saw when we were in canada right oh yeah the um the barracks the the fort in Quebec City, remember their... La Citadelle. Yeah, yeah. The, they have a goat as a mascot. Yeah, they do. That's right, I forgot about Wait, him. <laughs> I don't remember, was it that the British gave them? Something like that. Uh, yeah, either way, <laughs> the Vendusième Regiment, the 22nd Regiment of the Royal British Army, has a goat as a mascot. And they still have it. <laughs> yeah, not the well, same goat. yeah, yeah. It's been a few years. An interesting thing, too, is um, they actually have had children who are mayors, and they are honorary. They have been voted in. Yeah. And uh, there was one, I can't remember, it was some rural area, and um, it was because he saw a car. I can't, I think he saw the cracks. I don't think it was any of his family. I think he just saw it and saw how long it took for... um, emergency vehicles to get there and he said something's got to change and so he ran for mayor and he won good for that kid you know like if somebody's gonna change it you don't have to be (laughs) 30 years old and have several degrees behind you and yeah parents try to teach it's like okay well if you don't like a rule or you don't like something then change change it it. so so he did So, to celebrate Checkers Day, I haven't really thought about this, (laughs) because, I mean, you could go look up... You can't play checkers, right? Uh, Yeah, I guess you could look up speeches, (laughs) this speech in particular. Um, You can make a passionate speech that evokes emotion, right? Because that's what the day is for, or what based on. Sure, yeah, do that. Or adopt a doggy. You can adopt a doggy, which, okay, okay, so... Um, in all this research I did too, there were a lot of animals with the governing powers and elections and all that, that were not dog related. So there's like a chimpanzee in who, there's like this chimpanzee in Rio de Janeiro named Tao, and he, uh, got 400,000 votes to become mayor of this (laughs) town. And in another instance, Um, So going along with this adopting of a dog. So there is a dog from Marseille, France, named Saucisse. Saucisse le Tecle. Sausage. The, uh, what's it called? The wiener dog. Um, So Saucisse, Sausage, was a stray dog picked up by a French author who would then use... Uh, like the image of the dog and just inspiration from the dog to write stories about her and 
I don't remember the year, but it was during an election for the mayor of Marseille, and <laughs> he put her in for the vote, and she did not win. But oh. that's still a fun story. Yeah. <laughs> and now, I after looking that up too, I was like, oh, there are books about her, and there was something about like saucisse face à la crise, sausage in front of or facing the crisis. <laughs> <laughs> what crisis? I don't know, but I want to get that book. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, let's go with your idea of adopting dogs and doing emotional speeches. There you go. To change something. There you go. And, uh, dog rights. <laughs> Instead of like and, a fist up, it's like a pop. And equal opportunity for cats in the White House. Okay, okay. Cats can be in this too. Okay. Well, that's it from me. All right. That's it from you. Yeah. So we learned about escaping. How to get away with getting a bullet in your mouth. Well, yeah. that the idea is there. Yeah. They didn't teach you how to do that. But once again, don't try that at home. You can no. find, the, you know, go to the escape rooms and all. But yeah, don't try the bullet thing or straight jacket from a burning rope. Mm -hmm. Right. That, but. We also have recommendations for a Disney Channel film. Oh yeah, yeah. So you got that. Yeah, you gotta get. So yeah, we gotta we gotta um, watch that tomorrow. Sure. I'd watch it again. I'm <laughs> sure it's on YouTube. I know. So anyway, and um, you can watch it with your new adopted dog yes. laying next to you, right? Yes. Only if he's main mare. All right, well, we have, if you um, looked at our Instagram account, our saga of our broken computer. So we have a brand new computer, and we'll be coming to you again next week. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations. We'll be back again with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram, or don't tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use don't tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you next time! time.